0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Please do take your seats and uh, open up your Bibles again to John chapter 11. And we're getting close to the end of our series on John's gospel, which is called Life in His Name, uh, from uh, a sentence at the end of the book, John chapter 11, Jesus and Lazarus. Let's just prepare our hearts to hear God's word, shall we? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we've already sung and heard much, and our minds are full of many things. We do pray now that you would calm our hearts, prepare us to hear your word, send your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words, to give us Christ, to give us life in and through his name. And would you wake the dead here this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in 1961, a book was published under the name N.W. Clark. The name was actually a pseudonym. The author's real name was not revealed until after his death a couple of years later in 1963. Here's how the book begins. No one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It's so uninteresting. Yet I want the others to be about me, I dread the moments when the house is empty, if only they would talk to one another and not to me. There are moments, most unexpectedly, when something inside me tries to assure me that I don't really mind so much. Not so very much, after all. Love is not the whole of a man's life. I was happy before I ever met H. I've plenty of what are called resources. People get over it. Come on, I shan't do so badly. One is ashamed to listen to this voice, but it seems for a little while to be making a good case. Then comes a sudden jab of red-hot memory, and all this common sense vanishes like an ant in the mouth of a furnace. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing God... So happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you'll be welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face. A sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. What can this mean? Why is he so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so absent a help in time of trouble? Now, the title of the book is A Grief Observed. The author's real name was C.S. Lewis, and he was writing in a notebook after the death of his wife, Joy, from cancer at the age of 45. Death and grief. We've come at last to the seventh sign in John's Gospel, John has seven signs. Jesus changes water into wine. He heals an official's son uh, at a distance. He heals a a, a 38-year crippled man at the pool. He feeds 5,000 people with a packed lunch. He walks on water. He heals a man born blind. And finally, he raises Lazarus from the dead. So we find that our subject today, our topic, really is all about death. All about death. And as you know, this is a topic that our culture generally likes to avoid. Just try talking about your funeral arrangements when you're having a meal or a drink with some friends. Our culture is in denial about death. It's all around us, but we try and paper over it. It's kept out of sight behind a curtain. I'm 44 years old, I've never seen a dead body in the flesh. It's shielded from view. We see thousands of pretend deaths in TV shows action movies and video games if you're into that kind of thing but you never see the real thing. This week the image of a body, of a drowned Syrian boy was published with, a, with warnings over it. This may uh, upset some readers. That single photograph has been enough to stir hundreds of thousands of people to action. We really feel it when we see death, especially of a child. And death raises the really big questions, doesn't it? Questions that you can't afford to ignore if you want to live a sane human life. Where is God in our suffering? Is he going to do anything about it? And this is so important because death is going to come to all of us. It's our greatest enemy. No matter how strong you are, no matter how clever, how powerful, successful or rich, death will come and take it all away in an instant. And death is the great unknown. What lies behind the other side of the veil? You know these famous words from Shakespeare's Hamlet. The undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. Puzzles the will and makes us rather bear the ills we have than fly to others we know not of. We need to know, is that it? Does it just end and finish? Food for worms. We need to know. We need to know to prepare us to meet death whether it's our own or somebody else's. Perhaps there's no more important task in life than to prepare to meet death well. And yet it's the one task that our culture gives us no help with. We're resourceless. So there's nothing more important we could think about this morning than death because to great to quote the great Sufyan Stevens we're all going to die. And John chapter 11 records the greatest and most powerful sign that Jesus has done yet. John calls them not miracles but signs because a sign points to something else greater than itself. And these signs tell us about Jesus, about his his person, his nature, who he is and what he has come to do. And this sign, maybe more than all the others, raising Lazarus from the dead, shows us what Jesus Christ is really all about. It's the most important sign. It shows us the nature of Jesus, what he came to achieve. And this sign, this chapter 11, raising Lazarus from the dead, gives you and me the resources to deal with death, to meet death well, when that time comes, and when we encounter it in others. We learn three things Jesus waits, Jesus weeps, and Jesus wins. Jesus waits, Jesus weeps, and Jesus wins. Jesus waits. This isn't what we expected. Story so far, Jesus has been teaching and preaching. He's been engaged in a massive sort of long seminar and sermon series in the temple called the Temple Discourse. He's attracted loads of attention. He's been engaged in a kind of running battle with the Jewish establishment, the religious leaders and various groups, including a a protest group called the Pharisees. And all of this has stirred up an enormous amount of controversy. It has actually led to death threats, and Jesus and his followers have got out of town, gone back across the Jordan to base camp, And there he's teaching again, and many people, it says at the end of chapter 10, many people believe in him. So it's a productive phase in his ministry. Now, meanwhile, back in a town called Bethany, quite near Jerusalem, a crisis is unfolding. Jesus Christ knows a lot of people, but very few of them are described as his friends. And there are three siblings who are particularly close to him. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are their names. Sounds like a folk group from the 70s, doesn't it? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but Lazarus is really ill, so much so that the sisters send a telegram. If you want to look up uh, our text, we'll be skipping around in it, page 1077, uh, John chapter 11, and in this telegram, they say, verse 3, Lord, the one you love is ill. Now, This is a kind of read-between-the-lines sort of message. It's not just, um, Hi, Jesus, I hope you're doing well back there across the Jordan. Lazarus has got a nasty cold, kind of ill. It's a desperate cry for help. These two sisters are actually watching their brother die slowly, and they are agonizing about it. They've called the doctor enough times, and now they know they've got no other hope but Jesus. He is their last resort. And they know him, they've tracked his career, they've followed him, they've been hosts to him and his followers many times. They know all about the many powerful healings he's done. And Jesus has healed a lot of people. Many of them aren't even written down for us. They know that he has the power to heal Lazarus, their dear brother. They really do. And so they give the cry for help. The one you love is ill. Now what would you expect Jesus to do? He has the means, motive, and opportunity to heal Lazarus. He's got the means. He's got this divine power. He's got a track record of helping people. He's got the motive. This is one of his dearest friends, and he has the opportunity. He's heard while Lazarus is still alive. And so what on earth do you make of verse 5 and 6? Look at this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. He loved them, so he stayed where he was. Jesus waited. Just look at that language again. He loved them because he loves them. He waits until Lazarus is dead. Now, this isn't just bad timing. It's deliberate. In fact, he doesn't show up until the fourth day when everybody knows the body's decomposing now. It's a deliberate timing delay and according to the bible it's a delay of love he loved them and so he stayed two more days now from our perspective that seems crazy doesn't it it seems crazy from our perspective it sometimes appears that god doesn't care about me anymore he's just forgotten that i exist at times humanly speaking our circumstances seem to just add up to one conclusion god really doesn't care about me we need to be honest There are plenty of times where it's very difficult to keep believing in the goodness of God. According to the Bible, God knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows how many hairs there are on your head. Even my daughter doesn't know that, and she spends enough time brushing her hair. He knows when a single sparrow falls to the ground dead, and you're worth much more than many sparrows. And he loves you. But, you know, we will never comprehend the mind of God. We'll never grasp all of his thoughts and all his workings in its immensity. His ways are not our ways. They're past finding out. And we learn this strange lesson in this text. Jesus deliberately delayed coming to his friends for their sake. For their sake. Verse 5 and 6. He loved them so when he heard that... Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was. And actually, he he points this same thing out to his his, uh, disciples in verse 14 and 15. He tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. See that? Guys, Lazarus, you know when I said he was asleep? I really meant he was dead. He's absolutely gone. And it's for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there to heal him, because it'll help you believe. Jesus waits on purpose. In other words, this whole painful episode in the lives of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus is a painful episode and a lesson for us. Jesus uses suffering as an opportunity for us to learn and believe and grow and mature as people into the full humans that we're meant to be, which we would never have done if God had just zapped us out of all trouble and and, and beamed us up into heaven. As a parent of uh, several children, there have been many times in the last 15 years when I've seen a child heading into some situation that I know is going to turn out badly for them. It happens all the time. A few parents here are wincing. You know the sort of thing. And, and you just want to, to intervene and stop it and sometimes you have to let them go. Sometimes you actually have to let a child do something that you know is going to result in pain but you know they will grow through it. And even to them, their perspective at that time it, it was a really bad thing. Actually they will they'll grow and develop through it. And there's something of that here. Jesus waits to give us strong medicine. So let me ask you, if you're a Christian here, Do you need this medicine now? How is your heart? How is your health? How is that child that you always worry about? How are your loved ones? Who is your Lazarus at this present time? These two sisters send word to the Lord Jesus, their friend, and then they watch their brother die slowly. They must have been out on the road looking to see if Jesus is coming every ten minutes. And yet, Lazarus gets paler and paler and sicker and sicker. And, and, And this realization dawns on them, he's not coming. He's not going to be here in time. And finally, Lazarus dies. Where is Jesus? No sign of him. And this terrible thought, if only, if only, dot, dot, dot. Yet we know that it was a deliberate delay, don't we? We see the other side of the story. We know that in, in the strange and mysterious workings of God's heart, this is a delay of love. Jesus waits for a reason, and he still does. He still does. He waits. Now, the second thing we learn, we notice is that Jesus weeps. He weeps. Uh, shortest verse in the Bible Turn over the page, is it verse 35? Jesus wept. Now there's a simple detail, but we mustn't overlook what this is teaching. Because in fact we learn something very, very important about our God here, which we need to hold on to. It's the nature of God's response to our suffering. When he sees you in your extremity, how does he feel about it? How does he respond? Is he, as we sometimes fear, cold and distant and impassable? Is he, as we sometimes suspect, cruel and sadistic, kind of a divine vivisectionist? Or is he something else? John chapter 11 gives us the most intimate window, maybe the most intimate window in the whole Bible, into the emotional life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must just think about this and hold it dear. I notice four things about this. Firstly, Jesus comes, he makes the journey. He's in danger of his own life if he goes back near Jerusalem. Everybody's made that very clear to him. And he knows he's gonna they will take his life in the end. But at great personal risk, he comes to Bethany, he makes the journey, he comes to Mary and Martha, he shows up. Secondly, Jesus listens. He listens, and he does get it in the neck from both of the sisters. They both basically imply, you should have been here. Did you notice that? Verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Where were you? And then... uh, uh, Mary who seems a bit, a bit more the shy type she doesn't come running out to see him she turns up later on verse 32 Mary reached the place where Jesus was saw him and she fell at his feet and said Lord if you had been here my brother would not have died and she is weeping she's weeping he, but he just listens they pour out their misery and without a hint of reproach he listens to them and he listens patiently Jesus comes, he listens, he then grieves, especially in verses 33 to 35. He sees their grief and it moves him to his core. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, they replied. Jesus wept. In other words, he feels their sorrow and he enters into it. He is stirred to the depths of his being. That's who he is. Even though he actually knows what he's about to do for Lazarus, he's not weeping for the loss of Lazarus. He knows Lazarus is going to come out of the tomb in a minute like the mummy. He's weeping for for their pay, for how it's, it's impacting. He comes, he listens, he grieves, and he actually rages. You're saying, where's that? verse 33 we have it translated in our bible he was deeply moved in spirit but everywhere else this verse this word is translated it has the sense of being indignant forceful and angry you see jesus here is moved with sympathy but there's more going on he is furious he is raging at all the brokenness and misery and sorrow of humanity And the Bible would say he's raging too at the devil who holds the power of death. Listen to a great uh, theologian of a previous era, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield from Princeton. Why did the sight of the wailing of Mary and her companions enrage Jesus? Because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny. In Mary's grief he contemplates the general misery of the whole human race, and he burns with rage about it. Fury seizes upon him. His whole being is discomposed and perturbed, and his heart cries out, and he advances to the tomb as a champion who prepares for conflict. So, says Warfield, the raising of Lazarus becomes not just an isolated miracle, but a decisive instance and an open symbol of Jesus' victory over death and hell. This shows us the heart of Jesus as he wins, for you and me, our salvation. So let me just say, if you're a Christian here today, Christian friend, behold your God. This is who he is. This is what he's like. Jesus weeps. Your God comes down. He makes the long journey from heaven to earth. Your God listens patiently as you pour out your heart To him, he doesn't insist that you suffer in silence or that you suck it up. He wants to hear you. Your God weeps. What other God weeps? He's grieved when we grieve. It moves him. And he rages. He doesn't wring his hand in helpless sympathy. Oh, poor Lazarus. He moves towards the grave with strong purpose. So let me ask, friends, what are you doing with your misery right now? What are you doing with your misery? You have a choice. You can choose which perspective to see your pain through. You can weep on your own, turning your heart away, saying that the door is locked, or you can come to Jesus Christ. Even if he waits, even if he's silent, you know that he is like this. This is our God, our great high priest. The door is not locked and bolted from the inside. Go to him. Jesus waited. Jesus wept, and finally... Jesus wins. He wins. Right at the heart of this passage is an extraordinary conversation. It's one of the high points in the New Testament. It's between Jesus and Martha. Martha gets a bit of a bad rap sometimes. In Luke's gospel, she's portrayed as a bit of a busy bee who kind of gets impatient with Jesus because she's cooking up food and her sister's not helping out. But here in John, John kind of sets the record straight. Martha is is the example of faith. She is the one who makes the great confession. Look at the conversation with me. Verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. She's just holding on by a thread here. Even now, I don't know how, but I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus then gives an answer that is sort of, kind of a theological, textbooky sort of answer, drawing out her faith a bit more. He says, verse 23, your brother will rise again. And she replies, verse 24, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, in standard Jewish belief and teaching of this time, uh, the belief was that God would raise his people from the dead physically at the end of time on the final day and they would live again in a new paradise a new creation that was standard belief it was very unlike the, the dominant culture of the day of the Greek uh, worldview which was dualistic the Greeks see a big gap between mind and body and the spirit and the soul and all of that is beautiful and good and pure and the body drags it all down all the time and the body's kind of dirty and inferior So the body's almost a prison that you have to be freed from and so uh, Heaven is, is getting away from the body and going off and floating on the clouds and being sort of happy and in the blue. But the Jews believe in resurrection of the body, physical, in a physical world. And nearly all Jews believe this. Only a few, a minority of groups, one group called the Sadducees, uh, believed this. There was no resurrection, but most people believed it. And Martha is pretty much saying here, yes, I know, I know that. I know he's going to rise again at the last day, but that's not really helping me now, is it? It's not helping me when I'm hurting. And Jesus then says a remarkable uh, sentence, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Jesus here, it's the sixth time he said, I am, in John's Gospel. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. Now he says, I am the resurrection. The resurrection of the dead, which they longed for and hoped for, is not a concept. It's a person. Jesus, in himself, guarantees that he can raise the dead. He's claiming to be the one who deals with death, deals with our final enemy, the one who knows the undiscovered country and knows the way back, the one who grants life. And this is totally consistent with everything we've learned about Jesus so far in the book. He's the word of God who was with God in the beginning and who was God. He's the eternal son who's been in the bosom of the father since before everything was made. He's the loving creator. Nothing that exists has been made apart from through Jesus. He's the light of the world who turns back and pushes back the darkness. So friends, the night may be very dark and your tears may be very bitter indeed, but this text gives you hope and assurance. Jesus wins. He defeats death. He is the champion. He walks up to the grave and He commands them to move away the stone. Now, these were big stones. You couldn't move them on your own. And it it blocked off a cave that had um, impressions carved into it where they would lay bodies and leave them in there. And there could be up to eight bodies in one of these caves. Three on each side and two at the end. Now, nobody wants to move that stone away. (laughs) Four days Lazarus has been in there? Four days. It's a hot country, you know. They all know that by now, putrefaction has set in. The caves could hold up to eight people. You really don't want to roll that stone away. But see Jesus' authority, uh, they do it. And he steps towards the tomb, and he commands, Lazarus, come out. And one famous preacher said he had to say Lazarus, or they would have all come out. And still wrapped in his grave clothes and maybe with a tea towel on his face, Lazarus, looking like the mummy, comes out and his body's restored. He's not kind of like a zombie, you know. He's restored to health and strength. Life has returned. And so Lazarus, friend of Jesus, gets to be a guest at his own funeral. He gets to go to his own wake. He gets to eat those sandwiches in the pub, you know. And that funeral now is turned into a party. Jesus wins. He has the power of a death. No other religious leader claims, claimed, or claims, this kind of power in himself. The final enemy has been defeated, and we anticipate the resurrection of the dead. Now that's great news for Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, and the folk band can get back together. But what about you and me? What about you and me? Now you know if you've read the rest of the story how Jesus has conquered death for us. He did it by dying himself. See, we're all going to die. And actually the Bible teaches we all deserve to die. We've rejected God, who's the author of life. We've rejected his love and turned from him and made ourselves the center of the universe. And therefore we've embraced death. But Jesus dies for us. He didn't die for his own sins. He was pure and spotless. He died for his people as their head and representative. He dies the death that I was due. And in his death, he paid all my debts and took my shame upon himself. And on the third day, he rose again to new life, literally and physically, never to die again, which means you can too. You see, Jesus Christ made the long journey, not just from heaven to earth, but from the future to the present. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's announcing the future verdict that God will pass on death. The future, for a moment, burst into the present. Martha saw on a localized, temporary scale what God will one day do for all his millions of people, reversing decay, recreating life, bringing light and joy forever. So you and I have a choice. We can follow uh, Martha's example or we can turn to ourselves. We can follow her example, choose to trust him in the midst of misery. I started with a quote from that book, A Grief Observed. It may not be the C.S. Lewis that you uh, have expected to hear. Uh, The book's very honest and harrowing at points, but here's how he, uh, he broke through. What do people mean when they say, I am not afraid of God because I know he is good? Have they never been to a dentist? (laughs) Yet this is unendurable. And then you babble, if only I could bear it, or the worst of it, or any of it, instead of her. Remember, his wife died from cancer. But one can't tell how serious that beard is, for nothing is staked on it. If it suddenly became a real possibility, for the first time we should discover just how seriously we had meant it, would I really suffer it instead of her? But is it ever allowed to suffer for somebody else? It was allowed to one, we're told, and I find I can now believe again that he has done vicariously whatever can be done. He replies to us, you can't and dare not take someone else's suffering. I could, and I dared. Jesus waited to teach a lesson. He wept, showing us the nature of his heart, and he wins. He wins the victory of a Lazarus death, and he makes a promise to us that if we believe in him and trust him and follow him and build our lives upon him, obey him, he will one day take us to be with him in a new creation as a resurrected person. I wouldn't believe this. I think this is crazy-sounding, radical stuff. But he rose from the dead, thereby providing a guarantee. Let's pray, shall we? His delays are the delays of love. His silence is the silence of love. He wants us to ask the big questions. He wants us to pour out our hearts to him. He cares so much that he enters into our sorrows. And ultimately, Jesus wins. Gracious God, we thank you that you have not called us just to believe in a set of ideas and truths and principles, but you've come to us as a person. And you've entered our experience in our life. And you know the taste of death. And you know what suffering feels like. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your tears. And we thank you that you have loved us so much that you gave your own life for us. Help us each one to rest in you again, to know that peace of knowing you. Help those here today who are struggling with hurts and darkness. Please, uh, may this be a special time for them of comfort, tenderness, realizing what you're like. Pray for those who here are They don't know you yet, but they're looking in through the window. Pray that one of them today will come through the door. You draw somebody here today to real living faith. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for your great love for us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.